Petersfield's Shine Radio. This is Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, you're listening to Talking Books and I'm Susie Wilde. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books. This month we have two guests. Wendy Smith, as promised last month, come to talk about her brilliantly named book club, Reading Between the Wines. I think we can guess that one. She's also fundraising manager for the Rosemary Foundation Hospice at Home. We also have an interview with David Jarrett, a consultant in geriatrics at Queen Alexandra Hospital, whose book 33 Meditations on Death was published during the lockdown. But let's start, as usual, with what you've been reading, Tim. Right. Well, I've uh, been done quite a lot of reading this month, actually. I read The Pandemic Diaries by Alan Bennett. It's only about 60 pages long, so um, that still. didn't require an awful... called House Arrest. didn't require an awful lot of work. Um, also, of course, I read David's book, 33 Meditations on Death, which is, uh, which is actually a cracking read and mm. really to be recommended. I read... Richard Coles's new book. You know, that, oh. That's the Reverend Richard Coles, who does the Saturday morning programme, and uh, he was a vicar, and also, I think he was, he's retired, actually, now. And he uh, was also the um, other half of the Communards, of course, the the, the band. Um, his book is called Murder Before Evensong, and it's a kind of... Um, Thursday Murder Club? Well, it's not really. It's more of a... <laughs> I suppose you'd call it more cosy crime, and I don't think you'd call Thursday Murder Club that. It's just different. It's a different sort of book. It's a lot about being a, a rural vicar, basically, for, to start with. It's I about, like the way he writes. It's a lot about what he knows about, which is, which is, which is being a vicar. Um, and um, there's plenty of humour in it, but it's a it's different sort of humour to, to Richard Osman. Um, there's a few dead bodies uh, and a bit of sleuthing going on. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's, it's good fun and worth a read. He's actually coming to Chichester Cathedral uh, on 23rd of June. We're, doing, we're going to be doing the book selling there and it's going to be a, he's going to be a big event oh. in the cathedral, which will be, which be great. So if you're not doing anything Might on the 23rd of June, go along to it. Yeah. Um, Triple Cross by Tom Bradby. Um, it's the third part in his spy series that started with Secret Service. That's about a dodgy British Prime Minister who may or may not be a spy but who sounds and feels a lot like our own dear PM. Um, I read it so, in hardback. Yeah, no, really, it, it's really just good. out, and I, I really enjoyed that. Um, in My Grandfather's Footsteps by Angela Finley. Now, she's an artist, um, and a what is interesting about this book, it's, it's, it's a book about her grandfather, or, or Grossvati, her grandfather, who was a German general during the Second World War. Um, and... She describes her search to find out who he really was, and because uh, she's she was brought up as very much as an English girl. Her father is a was a British naval officer, and um, she struggled throughout her life with her mental health. And this is a story of how she sorted her life out really, um, and re- recovered her her equilibrium through this journey. Mm-hmm. So it's a fascinating book actually, and she's also coming here um, later on this month to to talk about the book. Um, not one not to miss. Well, um, I've been a little different this time. I thought I'd talk about the, the differences. So um, our producer, John, as you know, loves audiobooks. And I like them, but we, we've just been talking, um, waiting for our guest, about the fact that the audio experience is so different from the actual act of reading, which is much more active, I think, and the audiobook is more passive. But sometimes I think the audiobook is superb, 
And last month, you or the month before, you recommended One Day I Shall Astonish the World by Nina Stibbe. Um, I've got that on audiobook, read by Joanna Scanlon. And I think the two work really well, because for me, I would criticise the book in that it's full of her usual panache and humour, but it's like having an amusing person. And you think, no, enough already now. Nothing's happening. Where is the plot? What's what's thrusting this story forward? Whereas if you're listening to it in the car, which is what I mostly do, it's exactly like having a really entertaining passenger from wherever I'm going. So that works really well. And Joanna Scanlon reads it brilliantly. His breakfast arrived and I watched him attend to his eggs, placing a sprig of watercress in the ashtray and generally moving things about on the plate. He was such a pro, that's what hit me, knowing to pierce the yolks before attempting to sandwich them, and his buttering the eggs, not the bread, it being just baked and too fresh to butter. And asking, what's the biggest effect on salt intake, as he tipped a tiny pile into his hand? I worked it out on the spot, and said, the size of the hole in the shaker? Correct, he said. Normally, I'd consider all this fuss a bit much. It might put me off a person. But at some deep, unconscious level, I suppose I was sizing him up as a husband and father, because I very much required someone with high self-esteem and analytical skills. And goodness me, that chirpy good morning, followed by this egg and salt performance, was impressive indeed. For a man wearing tracksuit bottoms and with chip front teeth. Well, for on, on a note of, of, of listening to books, I listened to uh, Kidnapped um, well, but by Robert Stevenson. It was on the the BBC did it, and it was on on the iPlayer. And it's basically, I think it must be pretty unabridged because it it went on seemed to go on forever. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but in a really nice way, as you say, like like having somebody when you're driving the car, you don't necessarily want it's not really the same experience as reading a book, but you do want it it kind of going on in the background. And because um, it is quite a slow Victorian novel, so that's it, it kind of works in, in that environment quite well. But the, the reader who I found, sorry for the life of me, I can't remember what his name was, but uh, he's got some wonderful different lowland and highland Scottish accents oh. um, which change, and the, and the more rural and the more city, and it was really well done. That, that was extremely enjoyable. The other book I've brought is um, a graphic novel. Um, by the based on a short story by Neil Gaiman, um, illustrated by Colleen Doran. What's wonderful about this? It's called Chivalry. They did an event. The reason why I've got this copy, I'm looking shifty now because I didn't buy it from One Tree Books, but it wasn't Amazon. Tim, um, the Guardian were doing a Zoom um, interview, so the two of them were talking. Um, and if you signed up for the interview, you could also get the book. So that's where it came from. And I absolutely adore graphic novels because um, I did a fine art degree as well. So I absolutely love the way this is also It does drawn. look beautiful on the page, doesn't it? It's, it's really gorgeous. absolutely stunning. And one of the things I particularly love about um, illustration, even in a regular book, but certainly about graphic novels is that the illustrator can put in little humorous touches. Well, in this case, humorous. It doesn't have to be humorous. Um, such as, so here we have Sir Galahad. Now, it's not just me. I'm not dropping my H's. Um, for some reason, he is Sir Galahad in this book. But Mrs Whitaker, 
who wanders into a charity shop and buys the Holy Grail, as you do, um, is a keen gardener. And she pulls out some slugs from her weeds, thus, and gives them to Sir Galahad to throw because she can't be nasty. So he is um, told to throw the slugs over the back garden gate. And there's no mention of this, but um, John, (laughs) our producer, said, oh, this could be great on radio. But I'm describing it to you. Um, so the slugs are dropped over the gate and there's a fox waiting, licking its chops. So again, nothing. There's nothing in the text, but just a quiet little humour, which I think works really well. And then I love this size. So back to Mrs Whitaker buying the Holy Grail. Mrs Whitaker gave 50 pence to Marie, who gave her 10 pence change and a brown paper bag to put the books and the Holy Grail in. Now, that sort of thing really appeals to me. It's just, whether it's very British or something, I don't know. But I think it is. I think that's the idea of buying the Holy Grail in a charity shop is very British. It's very British, <laughs> under an old fur coat. And when she goes home, Mrs. Mrs. Whitaker cleans the Holy Grail. So she gets rid of the sort of nasty, thick, brownish red dust at the bottom of the Holy Grail, which is, of course, the blood of Christ. Um and buys a bit of liver, which she has with onions later. But it is, like I've mentioned about other things, why I used to really love Alan Bennett, less so now. But it's the specificity again, that on the mantelpiece, and she put it on the mantelpiece in her parlour, where it sat between a small, soulful China basset hound and a photograph of her late husband Henry on the beach at Frinton in 1953. And it's all absolutely so British, it utterly nails it. So there's that. And then when Sir Galad actually rocks up, um, she wants to know who he is, of course. And she wants identification because she's an old lady. And he produces... um, documentation signed by King Arthur which is the most gorgeous scroll which again you actually see in the graphic novel and she's quite happy with that and says all right you can come in then so anyway I won't spoil it at all um, by saying what happens but let it be said that it's not only humorous and it isn't sort of anti-old age at all which I feared it might be at the beginning but it takes the actual Arthurian legends, but also takes the fact that Mrs Whitaker was once, of course, a young girl in Frinton and in love with her late husband and how beautiful they both were. Um, anyway, I shall say no more of that. I just really, really recommend it to anybody. It's beautiful. It's a thing of beauty, handcrafted in a digital age, and I would say a keeper. Delighted to be joined uh, today um, by David Jarrett, who is a geriatrician, consultant at QA uh, for many years, who specialises in treatment of the old, um, and has written a fantastic and fascinating book called 33 Meditations on Death, about end of life, really, I suppose that is a a general term for it. Having Um, a good end of life, I think. Well, Well, no, it, it, it was really about how a lot of people in an age with vast amounts of medicine and investigations, are probably having not good ends of their lives. Uh, and, um, and it was a, something that had frustrated me for many years. And I've seen it not just within my work practice, but also with 
you know, the a decade or so of watching my frail elderly parents become demented and go downhill, I think there is a sort of um, a sort of collective denial of uh, uh, and blindness of the fact that we we are uh, mortal. And uh, uh, sometimes when people die, it's almost seen as a mistake somewhere, and uh, that it's a failure of science or a failure of medicine. There's a great joke in the book actually on um, uh, about the uh, someone coming to give someone to come to give somebody an oncologist coming to give a treatment to somebody. He goes down to the morgue and says, uh, "Have you got Mrs. Jones?" Yeah. Uh, and the, the 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 mortician says, "Oh, I'm terribly sorry. She uh, the the she's out for dialysis at the moment." Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and and that well, it, well there know. are a lot of those dark jokes. You know, yeah. sort of why you get buried six feet under the ground to stop the oncologist giving you more <laughs> chemotherapy, and um, they're you know they're dark dark jokes. Mm. But like all jokes, they they're just an exaggeration of something that is slightly absurd and disturbing in the world or or, or, or medicine or humour or, or, or whatever. I was just going to say you deal with the heroicness of the oncologist, etc., very well. But also I wondered, now this is my personal yeah. thing, is do the relatives sometimes get in the way? Do uh, they heroically uh, want to keep fighting? Uh, well, well, they do. And, of course, um, people's motives are complex because we don't know what's happened in that family history, what guilt there may be, what dark things in, in, in the past. I, I think it was Seamus O'Mahony, who was a physician who wrote a book on how we die now, was saying that the whole point of like modern medicine is trying to negotiate when enough medicine is enough medicine. And um, uh, there's a few cases in the book where... Um, well, there's one chapter called A Bad Death. I start with a good death. We start off you know, talking about uh, uh, you know, when things go you know, very well and people die either suddenly or having, you know, after a great big meal without suffering. And then there's a bad death where we were probably, you know, because we were slightly cowardly and doctors are just like everyone else, you know, don't want to be criticised or... or, or, or sued or whatever where we you know huge pressure from family putting someone through quite a lot of over treatment and uh, when there was zero chance of them ever having any life with any uh, quality we're obsessed by mortality in medicine and the statistics and we measure mortality rates and whatever because it's easy to measure but we can't really easily measure the quality of life or perhaps the most important thing for people and patients, and eventually we're all patients, that sense of well-being. One of the big points of the book was that we should perhaps realistically at one point in our life, uh, life think about what we would like as a traje trajectory when we are perhaps suffering from uh, illnesses that will never get better, that are likely to progress. What yeah. forward planning? Just yes, think, yes. Yeah. I think I think so often I'll be confronted with people say who've had a massive stroke, and their chances of survival would be very very poor, and they're usually thankfully very old and had reasonable lives to to uh, uh, to look back on, and um, again I'll be treading on eggshells trying to work out what the what the expectation is from families. And um, I would say, you know, it's looking a bit bad, but 
did mum ever say before you know she had this big stroke and she can't now talk for herself um, if she was in this position what she would want done would she want heroic measures or would she like you know to be kept comfortable and mostly people have not told their families this and of course when someone's ill the families just want everything done because they don't want that burden of decision making and um, only about 4% of people have had uh, have a, um, a, a sort of living will advanced directive that says you know if I'm demented if I'm very very ill I don't want this I don't want this uh, I do want this and um, I think that's a, a, a failing and I think as society we need that uh, we need to have that conversation yeah now you know sooner rather than later and there's a really good uh, living will that you've, you put your living will oh, yeah, in yeah. here one of the things you, you do say is that when you get old and decrepit and and or, or when you have a you know when you're in that position uh, don't don't bother the flu jabs don't bother with the, exactly. the statins yeah. don't bother with all the things that 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 aren't really not really important in, in an yeah. end of life situation well I, i'll give an example of my poor old mum who when she was um compass mentis would say oh god did you see that woman she got dementia oh god if i was ever like that you know oh god just you know put a gun to my head and pull the trigger and my uh, uh, and you know, jokingly uh, but then when she started to dement and get frail and then she just accept anything. So she died on statins to stop her having a heart attack. A heart attack would have been a blessing. Every year in the nursing home, um, they would say, well, shall we give her, we're going to give her the flu jab. And then the other said, no, not the flu jab. And then the GP would phone up. and you, Because the flu would have been the old, you know, William, the Osler thing, you know, the old man's friend. And it was very, very hard um, trying just to allow her to die naturally within her own her own setting and at the end of her life she could not recognize me she thought she'd say oh hello it's my husband you know and it's so distressing when you see your mother who can't even recognize you and um but being given all the blood pressure tablets and and and, and whatnot so i've just said in in my uh, uh living will you know that you know i had a stroke you know if i get pneumonia no antibiotics stop all the secondary prevention like blood pressure and statins and whatever and if say I can't swallow so often people with end-stage neurological diseases used to be 50 years ago you can't swallow you get saliva going into chest you get pneumonia you dehydrate and you would you know be kept comfortable with some morphine or whatever now because we've got tubes that can go into your stomach and into your veins and whatever we have all these choices that we didn't have years ago. And when you don't feed people at the end of their life, families now think, oh, mum is dying because they're not feeding her. Mum, dad is dying of, because they're not treating his pneumonia, rather than the other way around. You know, um, dad isn't drinking because he's dying. But one of the things you talk about is the, is the kind of delusion that, that doctors have all the answers. I mean, I think that's, that's a... I think that... You know, we need to get a bit realer, realer about about what is what are our options. Well, are. The, the problem, and, and I do mention, I think, called the bogus contract, is that you know, doctors are given you know good money, bit of status, and they're willing to accept that. And the, it's almost as if they've um, allowed 
the good things in medicine that have developed over the last you know many decades to to sort of justify that so oh, look you know doctors can do these things and they can treat anything but reality the reality is that we've all got this ticking time bomb in us that you know very you, I, the one graph that I insisted they have in the book which was the um, uh, a graph of age against the log of mortality and it's a absolute straight line and there's nothing you can do about it and you end up in a position where your mortality that year is going to be you can't get much past 100 however hard you try and we are not designed or evolved depending on what you believe in to go much beyond a certain level and it all starts falling apart and I think we're perhaps as a species a little bit arrogant about that we think that oh yes you know we can I think we can paint the Sistine Chapel and all of that so therefore why can't we live to 150 well we can't there's a little chapter in the book about biology of aging the only thing that has really been proven in animals to um, uh, prolong life expectancy is severe calorie restriction in mice and there are people in California who go around they've got zero body fat shivering in on a hot day not eating anything to try and live those extra few years but you know that's uh, they're willing to do that if very Californian I yes, think so yes. yeah <laughs> So there's lots of. It's interesting. A book about death. You'd think it would be very, uh, be very dark and and yeah. um, and dreary. But actually, there's plenty of plenty of humour in the book. I said, even though odd joke. Um, he is a doctor. But it's always but it's always humane. Um, and it's a very life affirming book. I think this. Oh, thank you. Even though it's about death, I think that's a, which is a very positive thing. And it seems to me to be very much to do with the quality of life. Yeah. Yeah. And and the the death bit is very much part of that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel. Um, I've done, I also must be one of the tiny people who've had, I've had a living will for a long time now since they were first sort of mooted because I'm basically alone. I don't have siblings. I don't, when my husband's gone, I'm alone. So it really fascinates me. I want to believe that the medical profession would be on my side um, in enabling me to have the best quality I can. I I think most would as long, if you have written down a direction or, or a trajectory for what you feel is right and what you want and what you don't want, and they have access to that, then I always respected that, and it was always a joy when um, families would say, "Oh," and universally without you know the daughter from California arriving at the last moment saying, "No, no, no, do everything." When the family would say. Um, uh, oh, mum would hate to be like this, you know. She would always said, "Let let me go," and that everyone's on board, and it's a great relief. So I think you, if you do write something down, and everyone knows, all your family and friends and your GP know what your wishes would be, then I'm sure that would be respected. Years ago, decades ago, centuries ago, there was a, a, a book, a very popular medieval book called the Ars Moriendi, the Art of Dying, and everyone knew um, there was an etiquette associated with dying. And now we live in a world where uh, you know, death is something that happens to other people in a faraway land. Mm. And we are denying it. And we need to get out and talk about it. And of course, the, the people who do talk about it, like yourself, have got 
made preparations, but in a minority, mm. I would say. Some of the, the gold standard um, of, of dying are really the hospice deaths. Of, and hospice palliative care doctors and nurses are very, very good. And I think the palliative care services should be incorporated into the NHS. It's mm. a sort of anomaly. And writers um, like uh, Rachel Clark, who palliative care doctor are very adamant about this and I'm, I'm sh- it should it should happen although in in britain in fairness there is a very good um, most hospitals have um uh, and like at queen alexander hospital we have uh, end-of-life care teams who can come in and help you actually say in your book that only five percent die in hospices half die in hospitals quarter in old people's homes and only 20 percent or one in five yeah. actually managed to die at home yeah which uh, is what we'd all prefer. We, everyone yeah. wants to, 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 to die at home. In some ways, it's you, partly because it's our home, but part, I think there's also, you know, historically, there's um, in films and plays and whatever, <laughs> people are always dying, saying a few wise words, and their head flops to one side, <laughs> and the family or <laughs> weep. It's kind of not like that. And there's, there's just the practicalities of people dying, just like getting a a very immobile person onto a commode and uh, uh, and changing the bed sheets when they've been in contact. All this sort of stuff is quite difficult to do when you think most of them are elderly and the people looking after them at home may well be pretty old as well. One of the things about the book, it was it was written before the pandemic. Um, would you have written anything differently in there if, if you know, if you had if you'd done it now? Well, I was very lucky in a way that I could put in an extra chapter, chapter 33 and a third, <laughs> about, uh, you know, uh, death in the time of COVID. Yeah. And um, because it completely threw us and suddenly there was people dying on their own with um, looking at a, a video screen of their loved one's People waving through um, windows, or they had sort of like hugging through a plastic. It was horrible to Special. see, and so it was a. It, 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 I think people did what was seemed to be right at the time, but I think the the quality of death during COVID, for the large number of very frail elderly people who mostly were the ones who died of COVID, uh, was was really quite horrible to to, to witness. Yeah. So you think? Do you think we've lost that humane touch altogether? That... No, no. I think I th- I think there is always, you know, there is always humanity uh, hu- hu- within dying. But I think during COVID, it took a, a real battering because of the restrictions on visiting and the use of, you know, if you were dying of COVID, you'd be have someone have someone nursing you with a, a blue paper. Um, gown on and a face mask mm. and you know if you were delirious that would be a horrible thing mm. and and people with delirium they perceive the world in in a strange way you know people who survive intensive care units and they often have a terrible delirium you know tell stories of it was like people like they were being looked after by by dolphins or something because mm. they the brain mm. interprets you know, a, a big blue thing as a you know dolphin, you know, and and it's terrifying, and so there's gonna there's a lot of you know mm. of, of 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 mental scars related to 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 the COVID, and you know a lot of people have been very you know lot you know not been able to have 
funerals. I do in the last chapter talk about, you know, how I always used to think, you know, the whole funeral process was, you know, a bit old fashioned and ridiculous with all this, you know, undertakers and whatever, and the slowness of it all. But of course, it's one of those rituals that's evolved over hundreds of years to try and put things in context, mm. to actually say that person's life is over and you've been to the funeral, you know it. And the thought of people just watching a video of a funeral mm. with only a couple of people mm. there is 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 uh, absolutely, you know, heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, um, thank you very much, David. I think I would really heartily recommend this book to everybody you, listening. It's, uh, it's an unusual but really important book. And as I say, it's not without its, uh, its sense of humour, but it's always full, full of empathy, I would say, and, and common sense. Well, that was brilliant, actually, Tim. I really enjoyed that interview. Thank you. So what have we got to look out for in the coming month or so? I've got a couple of books to talk about today. A few, a few paperbacks have come in and some new books. So the first one is Sally Rooney's new book. Uh, is now out in paperback. It's called Beautiful World, Where Are You? It's about people in their late 20s, early 30s, trying to find their way in love, relationships and in modern times. It's partly told in the form of long emails between two friends and it has moments of fantastically real, really good insight. Other times it's a bit slow. Um, but I think that it's well worth a read. It's not always easy, but it's well worth reading. Dictator's Muse by Nigel Farndell, a friend of the programme that came on before, um, which is basically about Lenny Riefenstahl and British fascism and the Olympic Games of 1936. Really good book. Uh, and it's, it's a cracking read. Uh, Snow Country by Sebastian Folks is just out in paperback. Um, it's set in Austria in the first part of the 20th century. It's sort of partly a love story, partly a book about in, in the inner lives of his characters. Um, and um, the sort of the changing thoughts and ideas of the early 20th century. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, new books in hardback, Freezing Order by Bill Browder is just out. It's a true story of Russian mo money laundering, state-sponsored murder and surviving the kind of murderous anger of Vladimir Putin. Um, he wrote Red Notice a few years ago now, uh, which is a kind of true-life thriller with lots of you know, corruption, bribery, murder, torture, oligarchs, um, but it's all true. Uh, it was the, the Magnitsky, Magnitsky, Sergei Magnitsky um, affair, uh, and um, so that's that's just out. And are they structured as thrillers? No, they're, they're just just very exciting okay. because, especially Red Notice, because it you because know the, the way it, the way it uh, un unpacks. Okay. Um, and the last book I was going to talk mention was is Taking Stock by Roger Morgan Grenville, which is subtitled A Journey Amongst Cows. So basically, it's the story is that at, at sixty one, um, Roger takes a job as a part time labourer on a cattle farm. Um, and because he wants to find out more about cows. <laughs> it's another of our guests. Another of our guests. He spent, I mean, he, it's basically sort of part history, part adventure, part, part sort of unsentimental manifesto of, of, of how we should be treating animals in, in the 21st century. Um, but it follows the history of cows from, you know, and their interaction with humans over the last 10,000 years. So um, uh, not a thriller. But uh, but I think that really will be really interesting. Looking I forward think to reading it. Good, that. or as we would call them in Portsmouth, K's. So our interview today is with Wendy Smith, 
And I trailed last month to you regular listeners that her brilliant book club is named Reading Between the Wines, which made me laugh and I had to invite you, Wendy. But she's also fundraising manager for the Rosemary Foundation Hospice at Home. So I do want to talk about both those things with Wendy, if that's all right. But let's kick off with books. Um, because Tim obviously has, well, obviously to listeners, I think probably know that he has a book club here at One Tree Books. But Wendy, what, how long ago and why did you found your book club? Um, I have a passion for reading. And what I found was you tend to read the same type of thing over and over. You get hooked on an author and you read all of their books and then you are bereft because you don't know what to read next. So I made some inquiries about joining a book club and decided the best thing to do was to start my own. So I put the feelers out to friends and they were very much, oh, I'd love to do a book club. And how long ago? How long? Three years ago. Three, Three right. years ago it's been going. And so what we do is we, um, we take it in turns of going to um, somebody's house. So we all host the meeting. Uh, reading between the wines is very appropriate because we do have Prosecco wine, as one does at a book club. And we always choose two books and we're all very busy people. And some people are, you know, will get up at five o'clock and read in the morning. Others read for half an hour at night before they go to sleep. So we read at different paces. And so we've always got two books and we always review both. And we sort of do the la 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 if you know you don't so want how, to how know. often do you do you meet about every normally about every six weeks right. um we we did try every month and we found that was just too much for two well, books two yeah for two books, books. well initially going. it was one book um and then because we've gone on longer people are now saying oh, i finished that book in a week it was so good i couldn't put it down so we've now got a second book so some of us um i've just started my second book this time round um but some people will only read one book so we're trying it's trying to accommodate all sort of levels really and how do you choose the books because i always uh, find that's the most that's the most difficult thing that's of all. that's the easy bit so what we used to do was we used to have a little box that we carried to each meeting and when we come across a book you put it on a piece of paper very very basic fold it up put it in the box and and then each time whoever's hosting the next meeting picks out two books sometimes oh, so it's random it's like yeah random okay. absolutely it's and we still do that we all come to the meeting with two books that we want to recommend and you have to sell your book basically at uh, the moment we we've just read um, the house party um and so the person who put that in had to say why they thought it would be appropriate for us all to read so they have to read it first before, before no no just, just on the um you know I mean, I, I tend to go on to the Sunday Times bestsellers quick and have a look if I haven't prepared. There's obviously the Richard and Judy Club. There's lots of places that will do book. And, you know, my um, we read the week each week. I don't know if you know the publication. Mm-hmm. And they always have books in there. And sometimes it will just catch you and you think... I'd like to read that. So, the, so they choose the, the host chooses the next two books yes, to read, yeah. and doesn't take them out. Of, I thought you was picking them out of the house. Well, so it used to be totally random in that we picked out, but you know, people go, "Oh, I've read that," or "Oh, I really don't fancy that." So, what we do is we now let the person pick out 
and if they go, oh no, they pick another one until they get a book. So it's the host still chooses, chooses the books, yeah. Right. Uh, well, the next host. So whoever's yes. hosting next time, okay. they are. And we've just done another fundamental change in that we have decided that we want to start revisiting some of the classics. Um, and so we're having a sort of a a main book and say that our last one was House Party by Mary Grand I think um, but we've also got um, Villette by Charlotte Bronte to read yeah. so each time we're going to have a classic as well and start revisiting some of the, the classics that have kind I of I like that it's evolving mm, actually yes yeah and, well, I, mean, and I think, I think it's, it's, it's so about book clubs every book club has its own little <laughs> modus operandi and, yes. and you know, and how you choose the books is mm. absolutely key. I have, I have yes. a book group I, I go to, old friends, yes. uh, up in London. And um, it, it is extraordinary. The, the, the convolutions we go mm. through to, to choose the next mm. book. So we've, absolutely. Now, we've now got a That's straight policy part where the, the, evening. Yeah. The, the, mm. the everyone brings... Uh, Everyone brings two books along. We had that for a mm-hmm. while too, and, mm-hmm. and then every, then you you vote on them. Yes, yeah. And then you have then there's a different way now. Whereas the the host picks three books, and you right. pick, and you pick one from right. them. Right. Okay, that's uh, a good idea. And yeah. which is quite nice because then everyone gets mm-hmm. a chance, but the host picks the. That picks your your shortlist. You can't also, yes, that's how course. many members there are in the group, yes, isn't it? Because yes, there's a yes. large number of members, and you're sort of just going round who chooses. Mm. Somebody yes, has to yeah. wait a long time to get their choice yes, again. Yes, so yeah. with ours, because we don't have a large membership, mm. we decided we'd meet in the Queen's Head at Sheet, as you do. Um, and then it doesn't get into competitive mm. hosting because mm. at one of my last ones. The amount of food oh, no, we don't do uh, was just no. crazy. Just and you wouldn't second. start on books till about <laughs> 10, you know. So we just meet at the pub and yes, then we yes. choose alphabetically. Mm, yes, yes, that's a good idea. Interestingly, we always have Prosecco. Um, we don't do food. And we always review the books first. And then, so once that's the your books... Reward. Yeah, and, and so, well, no, and then we go off and discuss all sorts of things going on in the world, as, as you do. But it is... Um, but it's just great fun. And sometimes you read a book and you think, I'm really not enjoying this. It's not my type of book. It's not the characters aren't gelling. But we've all got the same. We all finish the book, no matter what, because we review them. And so we have some questions we go through. And we even sort of grade it as in, would you refer it to somebody would you read it again? You know, we've all got books That's that really good. in five years' time, we know that we would enjoy reading it again. So we also do a, you know, a sort of a, an out of ten score on um, how much of a page-turner it was, were the characters believable? Did you really, did you associate with one character more than another? Did you sort of find it hard going? Um, you know, where you kind of good doing because I read on Kindle, um, and you know when it's a bad book because you're looking to see how far through you are. Yeah. You know, are you at fifty six percent? The one I'm reading at the moment, I'm fifty six percent through, which is why I know that. But if it's a really good book, you just don't even look at that. You just fly through it. Um, so, but for me, I've read books that I never would have read before, and I really like that. We had one member. 
um, who shout, she gave us the name actually she came up with the name of the group but she never read a book um, but she was desperate to be a member of a book club um, just so she could say I'm a member of a book club <laughs> but she Did never she no <laughs> so she used to come every time and we'd say to her have you read the book no haven't even picked it up but I'm here <laughs> She just loved the social element. And are you accepting new members? We do. Yes, we are. Um, And so what's happened is, so it started off with a small group and then members said, oh, my friend would love to join. And and people come and go as well. You know, that's really important. Life changes, jobs change, people move away. So I think we've gone down to as low as six and then we go up to 12. We carried on through Zoom. We did, um, through COVID, we did do the meetings on Zoom and um but of course you lose that face-to-face connection yeah. and um but we still kept it that together so we re- renamed pleased. ours the fire pit book club because when we could meet outside we did round the fire pit <laughs> that's a good idea which is lovely actually yes yeah i'm sure yeah it's quite nice isn't it well i was going to say that about what we do here in the, in in the shop is is so we do two book clubs and alternate months and one is a contemporary and one is a classic mm. um, and we have a different person comes to talk about the books so it's a bit more formal in that, mm. in that um, you show up you don't have to let us know you're coming you just mm. whoever comes comes sometimes it's as few as, as, as a dozen like you and sometimes it's 30 depending yeah. on whether mm. I mean, the first one we did after um, after Covid when everyone was very excited to be back mm. Uh, in the shop again in person mm. um, we did Hamlet the the um, Maggie O'Farrell book and the pl- we headed up here and it was mm. completely packed really about 40 people there that's amazing um, but, but normally it's more like 20 mm. Um, mm. And, but you never know who's going to show up no, or, no. Um, and you never know really what's going to happen mm. because we have a speaker who comes and does you know, maybe 10 minutes mm. on the book um, a little little ex- short explanation of what's happened in the book or and what she thinks the themes are and um and then it's a, everyone just piles in and says, "Well, I think this. I thought it was a layer of rubbish, or you know, whatever, or, or <laughs> like you know, yeah. or it's, yes. it, it's yeah. a, a masterpiece, you yes. know." And uh, yes. and if people have their different opinions, yes. and uh, what we try to do is, I mean, what I'd like to do is get people to say why they think it's rubbish yeah. or why they think it's we masterpiece. We do do that uh, mm. because it's not it's not just an opportunity to 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 express emotion. Mm. It's actually an opportunity to to enlighten everyone in the room as to as to why. Mm. Uh, you, you feel that strongly yes. about a book, yes, and yeah. and that can be incredibly enlightening. Sometimes mm, we have some mm. brilliant people who come mm. and they go, you go, oh gosh, I never thought that about a book, no, and I never, no, didn't didn't, mm. didn't even remotely occur to me that, and now it really makes sense. Yes, you know? yeah, and, uh, yeah, and that's why yeah. people come actually, yes. because it's yes. because you read a book yeah. and you think that was that, that really had an effect on me, but mm. I wonder why mm. I, I really mm. felt moved, or I felt yes. angry, or I felt mm. whatever. Yes. Um, or I felt it wasn't it wasn't very good, but I'm not quite sure why. And then mm. you talk to other people, and they and yes. you know they can yes. set you right on that. There mm. are two books that we have read that have really stayed with me. Our first ever book was a gen- um, f- one of the first books was A Gentleman in Moscow, which they're meant to be making into a film with mm. Kenneth Branagh. And we have said that I don't think it's come out yet, but we will go and see that. Oh, that's good. And a recent sort of in the last eighteen months we read was Where the Cordad Cordad Sing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, absolutely love that that's book. been huge it's yeah, been a big, big seller that, and it's just yes. coming to a film yes I mean, it I, is I, I have my issues with it. Mm, um, mm, it wasn't my favourite book, no. and I know a lot of people did think mm, it's absolutely mm. their favourite book. I, uh, mm. it, 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 I suppose he, it's um, she's a nature mm. writer, Delia Owens. Yes, and, yes. Uh, there's a lot of of colourful mm. writing about yes, about um, yeah. 
North Carolina yes, and, yeah. and the swamplands. And uh, if you like that sort of thing, you like that sort of thing. But I um, never would have chosen that book. Yeah, that's the thing about it. I really enjoyed the book. The um, the imagery of you know the area was just brilliant and of course there was a story going on behind that you think it's impossible there's no way you know but um but I just yeah I just I never would have chosen that book yeah. and it's not a book I would pick up to read but actually I really enjoyed it and and that surprised me and I thought it was a really good mm. mystery I enjoyed mm. the mystery part of it yes yeah and so I just mm. it was quite sad as well a, a lot, lot of emotion yes, in there sad. And, of um, course yeah and uh, mm. The Immortals The Gentleman in Moscow mm. is a is a super book I think yes uh, yeah yeah in that it's it's something on a very small canvas there's yes. just every Thing takes part takes place in a hotel, a hotel metropolitan Moscow, and it, mm. so therefore that's that's mm. really um, yes, yeah. small canvas, and there's mm. all that stuff so going much on happens, underneath, underneath the. Um, that was wonderful. So book. Cheap and, set. Yeah. But I want okay. to segue. You missed our interview, um, our first interview with um, David Jarrett. Um, our geriatric doctor. Actually, when I said that the other day that we were going to interview, and somebody said, "Oh, is he really old?" Thinking that I just know he's a geriatric doctor, <laughs> consultant in geriatrics, consultant in geriatrics, geriatrics. or geriatrician. Yes, yes. I'm not going to try and mm. pronounce that. Um, but he was talking to us about having a good death and mm. so on, and mm. how many people actually want to die at home, mm. and how mm. few actually manage to do that. I work with the Rosemary Foundation Hospice at home and we provide a palliative end-of-life hospice at home service. And I think it was the case before COVID, but very much so with the change of rules and everything. People want to be at home with their family, with their pets, um, with, with their friends. And there is still this fear that if the rules change, they'll have a lonely death. And what we do at the Rosemary is, in fact, somebody um, came in today and we'd looked after their husband, her husband and said, you know, it was just those, he was a very private person. And the nurse who looked after him just got it just clicked with him and you know and and it's all about and when you're at home you can have that whereas if you're on a hospital ward of eight or 12 people you kind of get lost a little bit um and i think that is what people want i mean we at rosemary are incredibly busy um you know and it's constant it doesn't ease up we're recruiting for nurses as well um and you know we are just we sometimes have to say no you know we just don't have the capacity to take everybody who'd like to be at home when they die um and then beyond that we look after the family as well you know we offer bereavement counseling we have a we have a cafe where people can drop in and and just um because it's not just about the patient who's ill it's about the family and how they're coping with that as well so um and uh, and the other thing I always say here is people don't realise is that everything we do is free of charge, and and that's because we don't want anyone to be excluded or not feel they can come to us to, for the services. So you see, so. what I would want, mm. and I said this to David really, is a good book and my dog. Yes, absolutely. And then I'd be happy. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I'd want the dog and then the good book. Okay, yeah. Yeah, maybe that way. <laughs> yeah, um, but it is so important. <laughs> Wendy, it's been such fun. Thank you so much You're for dropping so in. so welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. That was good. Two good interviews this well, morning. It was fascinating talking to Wendy, both about her book 
book world and also about her her life her real world of of hospice care yeah absolutely should we ever be so lucky to actually get it that would be good so i'm on to my backlisted book which this month is going to be the complete contrast actually to my wonderful graphic and beautiful graphic novel it's sarah wise the blackest streets i don't know if you've read it tim i haven't um it really was very well received when it first came out it's the life and death of a victorian slum um it was first published in 2008 so it's not a really old backlist but something drew me to it um i got it ages ago when i was um researching for another book that i was writing a non-fiction um and i ended up just taking out the bits that i wanted and not going on and there was something about it that made me think about how we're now it feels like in the end of days and poverty and everything's dreadful and reading this I thought well actually let's get some historical perspective on it all so the blackest streets do you know why they were called the blackest streets why oh good you don't know because I am now um audience I am showing Tim this is a map of the streets of London, which was produced um, by Charles Booth in 1889. It's his poverty map. So the poverty map, it's actually a thing of beauty. So all the streets are sort of grey and then they go in degree of poverty through to black. So the most poor, the very most degraded streets are the black streets. So hence the blackest streets. So that's why. And the blackest street was the old nickel which was on the edge of Bethnal Green. It was a notorious slum where almost 6,000 inhabitants are crammed into 15 acres of decaying dwellings and where the mortality rate ran at nearly twice that of the whole of the rest of Bethnal Green which you know was never you know a well-heeled part of, uh, of London. The houses were dreadful, some were only eight foot wide and built using cheap mortar from the byproducts of making soap. So it never properly dried. So I think what made me think of that was the ITV have been looking into houses now, which become hideously mouldy. And I couldn't really think why this was happening. But these houses never dried out. And because they were so poor, none of them had front doors or furniture because that had been burnt long before to try and keep them warm I mean it was utterly utterly dreadful so as soon as they put up more tenements they began to sag and rot it was really really dreadful but what's so good about the book is it's such a cracking read so it's like we were talking before about you don't always have to like a main character you can also read about the the meanest things but if it's written really well that's why I asked again about the is it a thriller structure like Tim Bouquet's books one of our other guests where he takes non-fiction but writes it very much as though it's a Lee child and yeah I think I think you could say that's what what uh, Bill Browder does there you are yeah 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 I must read it actually um but this too you just find yourself cracking through and the section I'm going to read is about the rental. So I've got some 85% of working class households in London spent one fifth or more of their income in rent. Half of them pay between a quarter and a half of their income to their landlords. 
per cubic foot, the rents of the nickel were between four and ten times higher than those of the finer streets and squares of the West End, averaging between two shillings and threepence to three shillings for a single room and around seven shillings and sixpence for a three-room lodging. This yielded high returns for speculative property dealers, the vampires of the poor, as another housing reform campaigner called them. The London Evening newspaper, the Pall Mall Gazette, criticised the avidly entrepreneurial house farmers of London, stating, These fever dens are said to be the best-paying property in London, and owners who, if justice were done, would be on the treadmill, are drawing from 50 to 60% on investments in tenement property in the slums. In fact, the Gazette had underestimated the money that could be made, and profits as large as 150% per annum were not uncommon. The potential for high rental returns was balanced by the higher risks involved in owning and renting slum property. The landlord in the very poorest areas was probably more likely to face the moonlight-flitting tenants who left by night with unpaid arrears and the squatters and wreckers who might strip a house of its pipework, fireplaces and roof lead to sell on for scrap. But what really, really shocked me is actually who owned it. The, the people that owned all this tended to be um, churchmen, politicians... Um, honestly, I just can't begin to tell you how really awful it is. Um, but what I loved about it is she gives voice to the people of the nickel and in particular to one Arthur Harding, who's a resident and a lifelong criminal, whose lively reminiscences were tape recorded in the 1970s. But to me, the 1970s seem so near and he was 90 then, so we can... It's not that long ago. This is people living in such degradation so close at home. Anyway, I think you can hear the passion in my voice. I really, really recommend this book. And um, I draw no modern parallels at all. But I think, you know, I think we need to think on because of a combination of circumstances that seems out of our control actually isn't and I also feel strongly because I was born in Portsmouth and part of the research I was doing as I mentioned before was I actually went to look at old street maps of Portsmouth and around now where you would queue to be going for the Isle of Wight ferry were the worst slums in Portsmouth and they were very very similar to this where you couldn't two people couldn't walk down an alleyway side by side they couldn't even go single file. There are places where they could only get through by putting their backs against a wall and, and sliding through sideways. It does sound, uh, it does sound like, a, like a cracking read. It is a little masterpiece it's described. I really, really recommend it. Anyway, our guest in July will be Camilla Chester, my mate Camilla Chester, who I met at, uh, here we go again, Society of Children's Books, Writers and Illustrators. She took over from me in front of house, actually, when I retired. She's a prolific and excellent writer who self-published really successfully um, and then has taken up. So her first debut as a traditionally published author is coming out. Um, in June called Call Me Lion. It's middle grade fiction and um, it, it's, it's wonderful and deals with selective mutism. Right. Great. Look forward to that. 
Well, don't forget to tell us, let us know what you're reading in local book groups, and we'll mention it on the programme. Find us in, on all the usual podcast places, and we love hearing your comments and recommendations. And we will put Wendy's books on the website this month as well. So all are regular as usual, but also Wendy's. So do check them out if you want to see them. So that was brilliant, Tim. Thank you very much. Thank you, Susan. You have been listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly, and produced by John Wellsman. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, I hope you're well. Do you know what day it is, guys? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. We're back in the groove, aren't we, with Rise and Shine this we week? We are. Uh, yeah, Hit we're the ground also... running. Rise and Shine. We are doing Petersfield Parenting, about life as a family in Petersfield. JC Creasy. Yes, good morning, Alan, to you and to all your listeners. Rise and Shine, my friends. Rise and Shine. Petersfield people will know this story. You can catch Rise and Shine every weekday morning. Rise and shine. Every day has something happening. Petersfield Shine Radio.